We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from London and the Trafalgar St. James Hotel here, right here on Trafalgar Square, a hotel that was just redone and completely renovated just last summer. Multi-million dollar renovation and a great location if you like history. Not only do you have Trafalgar Square, you have Admiralty, walking distance to the National Gallery, Nelson's Column, you name it. I always love bumping into expats everywhere I go. And in London, they're everywhere. But joining me now, who's from girlgonelondon.com, an Orlando expat. So yeah. you escaped Mickey Land. Uh, Kaylin Frankie, how are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. What's Girl Gone London? So Girl Gone London is uh, what started as a hobby blog three years ago. Because you came over here as, as, as like a foreign exchange student. Yeah, so five years ago I was um, a study abroad student and I fell in love with London and basically did my master's here. In? Um, in public relations. There you go. Um, and so at the time, um, I didn't have the right visa to work full time. So I needed some sort of outlet, like something to keep me occupied. 
Um, and so I started Girl Gone London, which was just working with like local museums, local attractions, um, and doing kind of an American guide to London. So you're writing it for your friends. Basically, that's yeah. how it started. And it's grown into something a lot bigger now that I didn't really anticipate, but um, I've branched out to other destinations, so I don't just write about London anymore. Um, Girl Gone London in Amsterdam. It, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and you met your husband here. I did, yeah. So I met him while I was on a study abroad program. Fell in love. Sorry, Mom. Um, and What do you mean, sorry, Mom? Well, the first thing I promised her when I moved away to study abroad was that I would not meet a British boy and fall in love. <laughs> but we got married last year, and she was very happy. So. So she's calmed down. Yeah. Okay. She loves him, so. So, has he been part of your tour guide, too? I mean, obviously, coming to any foreign country or foreign mm-hmm. city, it's a, it's an adjustment, yeah. right? But now you're looking at it from a, from a different set of perspective. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's the American perspective on London is so much different than what I thought before I moved here and kind of what... Give me an example. Um, So, I didn't really appreciate how diverse and multicultural London is because as Americans, I think we have this stereotype of, you know, we watch like Downton Abbey and we think just like British people are wearing top hats and like walking around in old Victorian times. But actually London is like one of the most multicultural places in the world. So in terms of British culture, um, it's London is a mixing pot of a lot of different cultures. So I didn't expect that when I first moved here. And the food too. Yes, yeah. I think they say you could spend like two years getting a different cuisine from countries and not run out of of different cuisines. Which is really good since London has such a bad reputation for British food. It does, yeah. One of my, um, I work in study abroad now and one of my students the other day was saying, oh, I thought that all British food was bad, Um, which I would disagree with. But um, London just has, I mean, you could never eat what you would consider British food. Okay, have you had kippers yet? No. You haven't? No. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> Bangers and mash? Uh, no, I'm a vegetarian. Smart move. Okay. So, okay, you've avoided that. Yeah, a but total I, vegetarian or do you eat fish too? Um, I eat chicken sometimes. I'm a big roast what? roast dinner fan, so oh, okay. I enjoy um a roast dinner. And of course, London is known for their roast chicken. Yeah. No, come on, they're not. <laughs> I mean, to tourists, they are in, in a pub on a Sunday lunch. You would be okay, but it's not the best place to get. Okay. Other than the stereotypes that you were able to erase the minute you got here in terms yeah. of multiculturalism and and diversity, what was the biggest surprise just for you personally coming to London? Uh, how expensive <laughs> London is. I had never traveled out of the country. Um, I had been to like New York a couple times, um, but especially when I first moved over and the pound and the dollar uh, were a bit different than now, it was... The pound's getting better for us. It is, and that a lot more American tourists are coming over because you get more for your money, but especially five years ago when I was first here. Um, I mean, London is a big city, and it's an in-demand city so in terms of like renting places living places it's it can be an expensive city if you don't know the tips well part of girl gone london is to help people with those tips. exactly yeah so give me one that's going to save me some money okay let's think well if you're coming here to visit um you could plan a whole itinerary without actually paying to go to the attractions because uh, most of london's museums are free um, so that's my biggest tip because you can see the British Museum, Cleopatra for free, um, the V&A, the Science Museum, Victorian all Albert. free. Yep. Yep. Um, and also to 
take advantage of the things, especially in the summer, the things that are going on in the parks because there's a lot of green space in London and there's always some sort of festival or event. And by the way, this year you're outside a lot because it's so hot in it's London. It's so hot. I think they said almost the hottest summer since 1976 or something Ooh. like that. It's been, it's been really hot and there's no air conditioning in London. Oh, so. you noticed that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here's a news bulletin. They speak the language. Yes, right? sort of. Really? Yeah. Did you get in trouble? Well, pants and underwear mean different Pants are pants. If I compliment someone's pants, it means I like your jeans or what Americans say pants, but it means underwear. Oh, I hear so. So you were you were corrected on that? Yeah, but one time, and I never did it again. Okay, so that was okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you you learned to look right instead of left. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I look both ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, the number one cause of of death for American tourists is automobile accidents. Is it? Yeah. You know what the number two cause of death is? Death by selfie. Oh. People like falling off cliffs and getting hit by trains because they think the the best definition of a picture has to include them in it. Right. Right. So I'm assuming that since you're here now, every one of your friends from Orlando has decided to come visit. A lot of them, yeah. So where do you where do you send them? Uh, so when I have people come visit me in London, we so we do go to the I mean we do go to the museums because I I just love them. Regent's Park has Primrose Hill, which is a really nice view over the London skyline, um, and is a very popular like local hangout. Um, so I bring them there. Yeah, stay with me on the local department. I like that. Um, I would take them to just like a hole in the wall kind of place for an English breakfast. Like um, so, I, I mean. Honestly, there's not one particular one. It's kind of the one that you stumble across on your way to something else that you see people inside that looks a bit sketchy, but that's where they're going to have the best um, English breakfast. And I would take them for fish and chips. For a lot of the places, I actually prefer to kind of go on the outskirts of London. So once we do the touristy stuff, um, showing them that actually there is a life outside of central London and what it looks like to kind of live live more in London as opposed to just being here as a visitor. Do you have a favorite hangout? I have a favorite place to go eat? Um, this is very embarrassing, but my favorite places to go eat are American places because I really miss what? American food. Are you serious? I know. When I, fir- when I first moved here, we went to pubs for the roast dinners and things like that. When in London, go to TGI Fridays. But as I don't go to TGI Fridays, but there are some very good American diners, um, which I wouldn't recommend if you're coming for a couple days. But when you're here for a little bit longer, sometimes... And you miss the strawberry shake and the cheeseburger, but you don't eat meat, so... I, yeah, I mean, yeah, milkshakes, a good American milkshake, yeah. an American breakfast sometimes is what I'm looking for. Um, but yeah, it's mostly, I don't have one particular place. It's mostly going to a neighborhood and then seeing where you see people going. Um, and if you meet someone on the street, which is London, so they might not talk to you. But um, if you do get involved in a conversation. Well, wait, you, you brought up an interesting point there because I'm a big fan of the conversation. Right. And I, I like to engage people in conversations. Yeah. And, and the British are not necessarily initiators. Not are, so much. No. no. Um, you definitely have to make the first move, I think, a lot of the times, especially in London. I, it's not the same up north in England, but the culture down here is it's such a big city. It's so fast paced and everyone is just in their own little bubble. So when you go, I mean, when, when I go to the grocery store at home and my mom is like talking to everyone in the line like she's met them before when she hasn't, um, that doesn't happen here. So um, if you're coming to visit, people do want are open to talking to you, but you do have to make the first move, as it were. And by the way, when you do that, initially they're a little bit aloof and they're a little taken mm-hmm. aback, and then all of a sudden you seek out common ground, yeah. and then they can't stop talking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then you're best friends for life. Exactly. The other thing I learned when I first moved here, when I didn't move here, but when I first came here, um, is the queue. Mm-hmm. I think 
folks who live in London uh, are conditioned to find a line just so they can stand in it. Yes, absolutely. We went to Wimbledon this past summer and um, we stood in a queue for six hours, and that's part. Why? No, I would never stand in a queue. Because for six that's part. There's a whole queuing guide you can look up online. It's like dozens of pages long, talking about queuing etiquette, and you go. Here's my queuing etiquette. I'm not doing <laughs> Don't it. Don't do it. Yeah, it was an experience, but British people. As okay, a whole I have to, to ask the obvious question. What the, did you do for six hours? Well, we had to get there at 5:30 a.m. So we napped a little. We, you take your blanket, you take your picnic basket, like you are prepared for the queue. This is a whole sep- This is a whole occasion in addition to Wimbledon. Um, and then we actually met an American um, visitor in line who we then talked to for six hours. Well, look, here's my deal. If I'm going to stand in line for six hours, um, you mentioned napping. By the time I got to Wimbledon, I'd be napping be during the event. Yeah, <laughs> It's just part of it. We, we just queuing here is a... a form of life okay so then let's take that to the next level if you know you're going to inevitably have to do the queue yeah that means you're inevitably going to have to have a conversation true though you could go the whole time without having a conversation i saw lots of people doing that but it did bring out it was an interesting it did bring out um a bit more conversation because you kind of are resigned to the fact that you should probably say something and let me guess and the person standing next to you the reason why you conversed with them is because you're both americans going what are we doing in this queue yes and i heard her accent and i was like oh another american let's have a conversation but we talked about london and what she was doing so (laughs) and then we enjoyed a whole day of tennis okay so and you're still awake it was great okay bottom line is Get ready for the queue. Get ready for the queue. about London and what's also daunting to me about London is the total number of museums in the city. It's it's not out of control. It's just daunting. And what's but what's what's attractive to me about it is I can walk to every one of them. I mean, it's it's they're all especially from where I am right now. My goodness, uh, what a particularly great location this hotel has right here on Trafalgar Square. And here's the thing that's a little frustrating. I could pick any museum, and we can talk about a lot of them, but any of them, and spend a year there, and I'd never see it all. So you have to pace yourself, but you also have to drive yourself to do it because it's well worth it. That experience is life-changing. Joining me now from one of those places is, uh, is Christopher Riappel, who is the curator of the post-1800 paintings of the National Gallery, of which there are many. Of which there are many, indeed. And now you're a, what, you're a, you're a Torontan? <laughs> In origin, yes, yes, indeed. And then via Philadelphia, but you've been here now for 20 years. 20 so, years. So you qualify as an official expat of somebody. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what brought you over here? Uh, the opportunity to work at the National Gallery. It is, in a sense, the mother of us all. If you're interested in, in art, in the painting tradition, uh, it's arguably the greatest collection in the world. And, and daunting in and of itself. It is. For people who have not been, and I'll, I'll even expand that, for people who have been, it's still a surprise every time you walk in there because of what you're going to discover. We're founded in 1824, and right from the beginning, the decision was that we should be an epitome of the painting tradition. That is, the greatest pictures uh, it is possible to to bring to London would be there, and we continue to to fulfill that mission. 
Well, actually, based on your title alone, you got the you have the most secure job because post eighteen hundred is everything now. It, it doesn't just, end. <laughs> it just goes on and on. Because it could be Delacroix to Ed Ruscha. Exactly, exactly. And in recent years, one of our big innovations is to expand our mandate from beyond European painting. And the That's how Ed Ruscha gets in. Yes. The decision to make, to show and collect American painting has become uh, a big part of our mission. Edward Hopper? Not yet. Really? But he is very much on our uh, on our list. We come late to the game, but we, uh, with friends, I hope we can catch up. Well, I think you know a few people. I think you can make that happen. <laughs> but what's the biggest surprise for people who come to your exhibit that they're not expecting to see? Well, I think when they come to see Ed Rouchet, they, uh, they think of us as a very traditional place. And to see this absolutely cutting-edge artist from Los Angeles, arguably... And by the way, I moved to L.A. in 1971. That's when I discovered him because, I mean, you couldn't have an exhibit at the L.A. County Museum literally without without Roche. Indeed. He, he was a huge figure in Los Angeles art, uh, but what we've seen over the last 30 years is this reputation expanding around the world so that young artists everywhere really now uh, think of him as uh, an inspiration. Now, you've got some of the, uh, the major league stalwarts like Picasso. Indeed. Right? You can't do anything without Picasso. I, I tell this story, and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not apocryphal, okay? We know that the, that, the, that the Mona Lisa at one point was stolen from the, from the Louvre in, back in 1911, I believe. Yes. And the person they suspected of stealing it was Picasso. Indeed. And in fact, they brought him in for questioning, and here's the best part. He hadn't seen the painting. <laughs> so when they showed him a picture of the painting, right, he said, you call that a woman? <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it says something about uh, the, the, the fame he was already coming to have, that the police should go to him, yeah. first of all. Uh, and by the way, uh, he was n never for, uh, formally imprisoned for it, and uh, needless to say, the painting has been returned. But that brings up my next point, and that is, okay, the Louvre has been so defined by that one painting, which is unfortunate for them, that Americans, especially Americans, will go to Paris because they're all failed art history majors, and they will stand, <laughs> in, right, and they will stand in line for hours, and then they'll come out at, uh, like seven hours later going, it's so small. I mean, they, they, right? They never expect it. What will they stand in line for with you? Um, one of the things is Van Gogh sunflowers. We have... Which at one point was auctioned off for how much money? Well, uh, uh, the one that sold for $38 million 20, 20 years ago. Unreal. 30 years ago, excuse me. Yes, it was an un, uh, unbelievable price at that time. Today, in today's art market, it seems... A bargain. And you have it. No, we have another version. We have... Oh, yeah. there are <laughs> you five. had Murray Van Gogh. <laughs> yes. No, there, he painted five, uh, five versions. Ours was the one he painted to, to put in his friend Paul Gauguin's bedroom as a kind of uh, gift. Uh, and it's come down to us actually from Van Gogh's family. Wow. Unbelievable. All right, so that's one surprise. You're going to see yes. it, right? Yes, indeed. What's another? Uh, another would be uh, Jan van Eyck's uh, Arnolfini portrait, this uh, 15th century uh, painting, one of the first oil paintings. Every, uh, if you say everyone is a failed art historian, in their art history 101, well, it's the picture they Well, they're art history major, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a, there's a painting they studied. Yeah, there's a, a painting they studied in art history 101. Wow. And the nice thing about it is you actually explain it. When you go to the museum, it's not just on display. There are people there who can actually walk you through it. Our education component is very important for us, that it's, they're not just these objects on the wall, but that we try and give them 
a context. You know, what you just said should be your branding motto. They're not just objects on the wall. Because people need to know how to be good museum goers. They need to know how to appreciate what they're looking at. Otherwise, their eyes glaze over. You know, it's not just about how you mount it or how you display it. It's the stories that you tell. It's basic storytelling one-on-one, if you will, as to how the painting got there, what its significance was at the time, as well as now, right? Yes, and I think a, a big innovation that's only a few years old is allowing people to take photographs in the museum. And now so you now can do they it. can now you can take a record of all the pictures that most affected you when you were there and okay. go home with it. So now I have to ask the stupid question. In the world of selfies, are they taking pictures of the picture or, or, or the art piece, or are they taking pictures of them with the art piece? Both. Both. <laughs> you often see people standing with their back to the picture and their camera held out in front of them. That disturbs me so much. <laughs> you know, Americans seems, seem more obsessed with documenting their experience than actually having it. Well, uh, I, I, I don't judge what, how people I know, experience But when art. you see a lot of people with their back to the painting, it's, it gives a whole new <laughs> meaning to art appreciation. Well, <laughs> if you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. Uh, my next guest, um, it, it, it gets to the point now where, you know, if you're not a foodie, you don't exist. Uh, every scene in every city is food-related. Uh, you want to, you know, attribute that to globalization, I don't care. But every city is in this in, experiential game of one-upsmanship when it comes to the food scene. And I think London is certainly no exception anymore. I mean, I go, I go back to the days where, you know, there were wimpies and, and really bad food. Uh, that, that has truly changed now. And the person who knows all about that, the deputy editor at Food right here in London. Mike Gibson, how are you, sir? Very well, thank you, Peter. How are you? What is Foodism? Uh, Foodism is a free uh, monthly magazine that celebrates London food culture, or London bar and restaurant culture, I should say. So I guess we try and tell the stories of the people that drive London's kind of contemporary food scene. Well, before we get to the food scene, um, you know, if you got into a car, I, I, I will tell you this. Last time I was in London, I did something I had never done before, because I tend to be a little bit of an elitist when it comes to these things, and I have to catch myself. Mm -hmm. and I said, you know what? I'm not going to be an elitist, and I did something I had never done, I did the hop-on, hop-off bus. Now, I've been coming to London since I'm 12 years old. I think I know everything about London. I learned so much on yeah. that bus. No, I've done that once before, actually. Wasn't it fun? Yeah, yeah, It fun. really was. But the, here's the thing that I also saw, because now I'm not driving, and I actually can look out the... I'm obviously sitting up on top. Who would ever want to drive down below? You want to sit up on top, and as I'm looking around, every time, by about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, every time we're passing a pub, there's a line. People are drinking outside. Yeah, They're not drinking absolutely. inside, right? The, I don't remember seeing that 20 years ago. No. No, I mean, London's always changing. I mean, that's the, that's the amazing part of, of living and working in a city that's a thousand or so years old. Um, and there's, there's a lot of amazing things to see and do. Well, what, other than watching people drink outside, <laughs> what's been the biggest change in the restaurant scene? Well, like I said, it's kind of London's not London's always been an amazing place to eat, really. But um, it well, was kind of fooled of, me twenty years ago. Well, yeah, I mean, it was it was there were amazing places to find at the top end, I'd say. So so places like um, well, twenty Michelle, years ago, Lagerroche and all that stuff. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. Um, and and what you've seen now is basically in the last, I mean, in the last kind of five or ten specifically, is is this opening out of the food scene in London to include um, casual dining, but also street food, which is which is a really new and really innovative way to eat, uh, and lots of people are very excited about it. I mean. Has there been a food truck invasion? Basically that, yeah. I mean, I know in, in the US there's, there's been oh a kind God. of food truck 
culture in a lot of cities, Austin and San Francisco and stuff like that. But it, it's it's newer in London. Um, but we were also getting the kind of benefit of of being close to, to Europe and amazing kind of food markets for a slightly different kind in places like Barcelona and Madrid and, and stuff like that. So really, um, yeah, recently we've kind of had this influx of, of amazing uh, street food traders that have realised that a kind of a truck or a gazebo or something like that can be just as amazing a kitchen as, as somewhere in something permanent. And, and you've got these amazing street food market operators that are kind of collating this community of traders, driving the whole thing forward. Um, it's inexpensive, super accessible. Uh, and some of it, I would genuinely say, is among the best fa- uh, the best food to be found in the city. So. Like? Uh, Bredo's Tacos are an amazing example. They, they're super committed to, to kind of... This is a food truck? Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they were a food truck. They've got a couple of restaurants now, but, but they, they started out... They did so well, they opened in, a restaurant. Well, exactly. Yeah. Some of them do that, and some of them stay in, in kind of food markets where uh, maybe the overheads are a bit less and it's a bit more mobile and stuff like that. But... Um, I mean, there's amazing stuff to be found all over the city. Street Feast is, in particular is a, is a great operator of food markets. It's got about six or seven now, and it's kind of turning derelict places in London into these amazing buzzing hives of, of activity and traders and, and good food and drink. So it's great. It's a, it's a really interesting thing to watch. And they're easily accessible. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. I mean, there are some in kind of bang in the, in the middle of London, so one in Shoreditch that, that's really well known. And there are some in recently that Street Feast that I mentioned has opened in Wood Green, which is kind of right in the far reaches of North London. And So the so, neighborhoods are getting Yeah, them. absolutely. Yeah. And where I come from in, in Dalston, um, there's, not a rest, uh, there's not a market there now, but that was their kind of first one. So they've always balanced that, um, you know, central London with, with some of the outreaching neighborhoods and, and, you know, giving a lot of people a lot of good place to eat at the same time. The other thing that I've noticed, and I'm sure it's a, it's a factor of competition, is that the hotel food has gotten better. Yeah, I mean, hotel restaurant, hotel bars in particular as well. Yeah. Some, of the, some of the hotel bars we've got here. Are, well, you got one right here at the, yeah, top, yeah, the, the rooftop. Here, yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful rooftop up here. I've been there before. Um, and there's a lot, of, a lot of hotel restaurants here that are in, that kind of pop up in the world's 50 best bars list. And um, a lot of them that kind of, you know, they get international bartenders coming in and um, the guys will go out to kind of tails the cocktail in New Orleans and, and stuff like that. And they're, they're really at the top of their game. Uh, and the, food, the hotel food as well is amazing. A lot of amazing hotels. I mean, know. hotel food in London, let's, let's be honest, it used to be, you know, prime rib and potatoes yeah. and and bangers and mash you know it was it was not really you know laudatory yeah well no i think now now you're getting hotels kind of willing to probably willing to pay for for kind of big name chefs to bring operations over here and because and they're the, also getting local traffic yeah, yeah it's absolutely just, it's not just the hotel guests absolutely yeah no the, no it's 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 gone from kind of people um spending you know expense putting expenses uh, on a, a big kind of tasting menu to to it drawing in people from all over the city it's great well i got to ask you this question because you know we've been dominated in the last 15 years, maybe even a little bit longer, by the world of the celebrity chef. Every Mm -hmm. chef has to be a celebrity. Every chef has to have their own TV show. Every chef is branded. And, you know, the question that has to be asked is, there's only one chef. He can't be in nine of his own restaurants at the same time. The concept of the celebrity chef Mm -hmm. and how do you maintain, well, how do you maintain quality standards when the chef's not always on the the job? Yeah. It's more about branding than quality or is it more than branding and and quality control? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think think if you go to, um, let's say, Alan Ducasse at the Dorchester just around the corner from here, I I think, you know, I think the the consumer knows that it's not going to be Monsieur Ducasse cooking in the kitchen for you. Um, But I guess guess what what you're paying for and what you're going for maybe is the track record and, and the kind of this, the 
fact that they've built this restaurant in in their own image. Uh, they've placed their their trust in in a lot of really really talented kind of executive chefs and head chefs at, at the different outposts. I mean, yeah, I do think I do I agree with you. It's an interesting it's an interesting quandary because you know if you go to a restaurant and, you, and it's advertised as being one of the best chefs in the world, it's obviously going to be more exciting if you know that they're in there. Although you know, I walk into a restaurant with a name of a of a Ducasse or a or a Daniel Belude mm-hmm. or and I'll say, when was the last time he was here? Yeah. Oh, he comes in about once a year. I'm like, what? You know, no, I didn't come in there to meet him. Yeah. But it's sort of like nice to know he spends a little more time supervising. Yeah. I mean, a good example, I guess, is someone like Simon Rogan. He's got quite a small operation. I don't know if you've ever ever been to um, uh, Long Clume in, in Cartmel in the Lake District. It's right, right, up, right up the north of England, near, quite near Scotland. It's absolutely amazing. It's regularly cited as one of the best restaurants in the UK, possibly the best. Um, he's just brought a, his restaurant Roganic down here, um, which I think is probably a shoe in for two Michelin stars when the, when the next guy comes out. Um, I walked in there. I, I'd been to Long Clume about a year and a half ago um, and I walked into Roganic uh, and the GM from, from Long Clume said immediately he said hi Mike how are you I think that's I mean I think A that shows their commitment to kind of hospitality yeah. beyond the food at the top level I think it's, well, it's unparalleled well that's their commitment to name recognition well exactly <laughs> but um, but also I, mean, I think it's it's kind of if you do, if you don't overextend if you've got two or three uh, maybe in different parts of the country um, and you, you have a load of contact time there right as you open the restaurant you make sure the staff are, are doing what they would do in, in the other place and stuff like that I think you can you know I, th- I think you can get all the track it certainly felt to me like a Simon Rogan restaurant and I'm sure he was there you know right. in the first week or so but to be devil's advocate I, I still make, maintain that you can only delegate so much you have to really be more hands-on yeah well I mean I think either you, way well, you remember the story about about the guy who was who had a restaurant in location a and had a restaurant in location b and Michelin took one of his stars away because he wasn't around yeah. and, and you th- I thought the guy was going to commit suicide yeah. but the point is it sent a message yeah absolutely I mean I think uh, to be honest I think um this kind of cult of the celebrity chef is possibly not coming to an end but there's so much uh, quality in the kind of other side you know in the other um, areas of the market casual dining especially and kind of um, that, that level just below Michelin star where, where it's kind of it's got trappings of fine dining but it's it's kind of a bit <laughs> there's more there's a branding message we have trappings of fine exactly dining. well it's a bit more accessible there's, there's a load of great places especially in, in East London where I live at the moment there's, there's a load of really interesting places that are doing really ambitious foods like what? Uh, there's a restaurant called uh, Perilla that's a really really interesting place it's kind of does a tasting menu it's got hints of that kind of new Nordic dining but it's quite affordable it's probably about £45 for a All tasting right, Let's talk about something we've, I've never talked about on the show before, and that you just mentioned, a tasting menu. Because mm-hmm. every once in a while you go to a restaurant, and they will actually have on the left-hand side of the menu a full page thing, yeah. or you can order the tasting menu. Yeah. And it's like 12 courses, yeah. or 14, right? Is that reasonable to try to do that because... That's a lot of food. Yeah, I mean, it's. Look, I'm a sucker for it. I'm, I, I love a tasting menu. I love because you you're know, lazy. You don't want to do any work. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want. I don't want to have to choose. Um, but no, I mean, I think there's, like I said, there, there's incredible casual dining to be found here. But there's also, um, you know, like you mentioned, Le Gabarosh or, or someone like that. These are incredible restaurants that have been at the absolute top of their game, kind of pushing that culinary boundary for for decades and decades. Um, and I think, but I think it's a really nice way to eat occasionally. It's not something I would do every Monday or Tuesday night if I went out to eat, and especially not locally. But if you're, if, you know, sometimes you just want to be sat at a table for four hours and be treated and surprised and wowed and stuff like that. I think it's an amazing way to eat, personally. Okay, I want to go breakfast, lunch, and dinner with you. And mm-hmm. and one of your one of your breakfast ideas was surprising because it's yeah. from an Indian restaurant. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a um, there's a restaurant called Dishoom. Uh, it's got, I think, about seven restaurants here. It started out as a small independent restaurant, and it's, it's one that there are restaurants like that in London and, and beyond that having real success. These kind of restaurants that have scaled up for a really unique offering, and, and they've scaled up to six or seven restaurants. Maybe um, they're keeping the quality really high. People know if they don't, if they can't get in that one, they can go to that one. That kind of thing, uh, and it's 
also got a queue outside the door almost all the time, which is something you'll see in well, London a lot of the moment. London. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and for lunch, you go, you recommend a food market? Absolutely, yeah. So so after a kind of bacon naan at Dishoom, which is their their kind of flagship breakfast thing, everyone everyone absolutely loves it. Um, street Feast Dinorama, the one I mentioned in Shoreditch, I think it's just a great place to to see how far that street food scene's come in London. And dinner real fast? Yeah, dinner at go on, I go organic, the place I mentioned. We'd have the tasting menu and I'd convert you. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. You know, every building, and London is such a walkable city, and if you look up, you see so much more. But also look down. Where are you walking? You're walking on history. Every street has a story. Every corner has a story. And this hotel certainly has a story. And joining me now, the head concierge from the Trafalgar St. James, Tom Howard. Tom, you know, this building wasn't always a hotel. Correct. Um, Previous to us or the hotel being here, um, it was a number of outlets. Um, The building actually dates back to the Titanic times. And in fact, the first message received on land of the Titanic sinking was taken in our now Lancia suite on the first floor. Because this was the headquarters then of Cunard. Yeah, it was the headquarters of Cunard, which obviously had a, a hand in the Titanic, um, and it was their base in central London. Much of Trafalgar Square itself, if you look around at the buildings in Trafalgar Square, date back to the golden age of travel, you know, the steam cruises, that kind of thing. So much of the buildings here are of that era. Are there any steamer trunks left in the building? <laughs> not in the building, no. Not that I know of anyway, not in my luggage room. But it was originally an office building. Originally, yeah. When Before we took it over, it was an office building. The ground floor of the hotel was separated into two different restaurants um, and above it was was offices used in the area but you know other than just the fact that this was the Cunard headquarters and this is where they got the word uh, if you walk out the lobby and you turn to the right you're looking at some very historic buildings as well of course yeah I mean within walking distance of the hotel you have Admiralty Arch and I see the flags the minute I walk out that's it yeah Yeah. I mean it's 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 a very historic area to be in Trafalgar Square uh, Nelson's Column uh, the Four Lions, you know, people know that that picture, that, that landmark around the world. And to have that on our doorstep, where you wake up in the morning and walk out that door and you're there, you know, it's, it's a special place. Let's talk about Admiralty because there's so much history. I mean, what I, what I love about London, it's, it's not just the British Museum. It's not the National Portrait Gallery. There's, there's a museum like every four blocks somewhere. Yeah, more or less. I mean, on Trafalgar Square itself, we have the National Gallery and the National Portrait Gallery. You know, but within a... By the way, well worth a day, at least. <laughs> oh, for sure, for it's sure. Not, it's not a lifetime. And, you know, we're very close to the Natural History Museum. You can walk through to the Victorian Albert Museum. And in London, it's very special. Most of the museums and galleries are free of charge to go into. Um, unless you're looking to see a specific exhibition that they may, may have on, in which they'll ask for a small donation, most of them are free to go in and visit. So it's an, it's an ideal spot. Now, you started off as a luggage porter. I did, 17 years ago as a luggage porter. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, yeah. How, uh, how were the tips back then? <laughs> yeah, they were good. They were good. Uh, well, the pound was stronger. The pound was definitely stronger back then, that's for sure, yes. Um, but yeah, 17 years ago, I started working at the Trafalgar, um, and I've loved it ever since. The, when you think about it, I mean, when you start at that level, you see the hotel from the inside out. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, coming, coming from a boy from southeast London, 
uh, coming into the city of London, never stayed in a four-star property, five-star property before, not really know what to expect. Surprised they would even let you in. More or less, yeah. 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 Um, coming in and really learning from the get-go, really. You know, learning from the guys that were already here. You know, my dad always gave me a great bit of advice, keep your eyes and your ears open and your mouth shut. And that's what I did for the first year and a half and just really knuckled down, listened to what people were saying, listened to the questions that were being asked. That's the only way to learn and ask the questions. Um, well, the know. key is to not let them find out that you're actually here. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, <laughs> keep quiet. You know, just just stay in the background to see what's happening. Um, but ever since joining, I mean, I've loved working in the concierge team. It's it's very much like a family atmosphere. How have the guests changed? Um, here at the hotel, quite a lot. We originally we saw a lot of uh, American guests staying with us here at the hotel, um, but over the years that has changed quite a lot. We're seeing a lot of. A lot of Asians coming over to the hotel, staying with us. We've had a lot of Australians staying with us. Um, and, of course, we still get the, the British people that stay with us as well. Um, the Trafalgar St. James is for everyone. We, we welcome locals. We welcome tourists. We welcome anyone, really. Well, listen, since you're in walking distance of everything, let's, let's get to some ideas that you might have. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Okay, right. So London has a, is a massive food scene. We know that. Um, for breakfast, I'd head to... It goes to some- way beyond the old days at Wimpy's, right? It <laughs> certainly does, certainly does. I'd head to somewhere called The Breakfast Club. They have a number of locations throughout central London, but they have one up on in Soho. Um, they do an amazing Mexican um, eggs benedict, which has chilies and uh, chorizo. That'll wake you there. up in the morning. Certainly does. Yeah. Um, you could wash all that down with a nice Elvis shake, which is peanut butter and, and banana shake. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then if you do walk along the riverfront itself, take a walk along the South Bank, head down to what is now the new Maltby Market in Bermondsey. Um, there's a, there's a, um, a street food vendor there called Gyoza Guys, which are offering some great, great gyoza, uh, chicken, vegetables. Um, very popular on Instagram. They were voted in the top 20 of London's new street food vendors. And then dinner? And then dinner, I'd head to Windows um, Galvin at Windows, which is on Park Lane. It's 28 floors up. Gives you great views over Hyde Park and the surrounding area. And if you're very, very lucky, you may even get to see in the Queen's Back Garden. Um, and, of course, let's not forget, you've got a rooftop here. We have a rooftop here as well, yeah, of Everything course. Everything in London these days is a rooftop. Right? Everywhere. You want to be, be in a good location, rooftops of what you need. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is... The flight attendants. Please look at one now. I've been coming to London since I'm 12 years old. I've been coming to Trafalgar Square since I've been 12 years old. I didn't even know about this hotel until I stumbled onto it. And what a, what a great location that is. And joining me now, the Deputy General Manager of this hotel, Elodie Van Beveren. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, great location. Great location, more central in London. It's actually the, the, the point where everything starts. So this is the most central point in London, is Trafalgar Square. Now, there'd be people who would argue that it would be Piccadilly Circus, or it would be... In all the maps, in <laughs> officially, it is Trafalgar Square. And, of course, things happen here if they're going to have... They're going to have uh, demonstrations. Absolutely, or, I mean, yes. You, you have a, and from your rooftop restaurant, you have the best view of, uh, of disruption. Yes, we did. And we had a couple of weeks ago here. Uh, there was lots of demonstrations um, um, just in Trafalgar Square. So it was, it's an, just what we, we It's have activity very, and energy. Absolutely. It's yeah. part of the day-to-day. 
It is. But for those people who are worried about logistics of, of a city, uh, when you say it all happens here, it truly is an opportunity to start here and use it as a hub. And this hotel, you just walk anywhere. Correct. Yes. It's very easy. There's tube station is just outside the door um, and it takes you everywhere. Very easy to go anywhere from here. Now, earlier in the show, we learned about the history of this hotel, yep. uh, about you know its early days, even with Cunard. Correct. And you know they got the first word of the Titanic here. Correct. Yes. Um, and then it was an office building, and then it was re- repositioned as a hotel, and then you guys went through a huge refurbishment. Correct. And 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 just basically opened your doors to this whole new idea. Correct. What what was the design change you did here? The, everything is changed. I think this hotel opened um, in 2001. Right. Um, as and a hotel. It, as a hotel, yeah. yes. And um, since 2001, there was there hasn't there haven't been any refurbishment. So I think the hotel needed a good um, refresh. Um, and what um, what we've done is just went every into every bedroom everywhere in the hotel and just changed it all. So we just well, made it... Well, let's talk about that for a second because anytime you have an opportunity to do that, you have an opportunity to correct the mistakes of the last guy. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Whether, whether it's lighting, whether it's uh, just basic common sense and technology without overdoing it. Correct. Um, the placement even of electrical outlets. Um, right? It, yes, It's absolutely. not just thread count on the sheets. It's yes. things that people really come to expect the worst when they come to... Uh, as, as a guest at other hotels, I'm sure you do what I do, we end up crawling on the floor looking for an outlet. Correct. Right? I mean, it's, it's <laughs> one of those crazy things. So what did you learn from other people's mistakes that you were able to incorporate here? I think, you know, it's it's very, um, it's very, th- a lot of things. When, when you haven't refurbished in a hotel for, for over 10 years, technology changes. So, you know, for me, the main thing was, like you say, crawling under the under the bed to get a plug, whereas, you know, it's also now, you know, you need to have USB ports, you need to, to be able to plug many, many different devices um, because everybody comes with a mobile phone, with an iPad, with a laptop, with everything. So it's having that. It's, 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 you know what it is? You come with a hardware store, but once you get there, you don't have to look for a hardware store. Absolutely. So, and it needs to be all all there for you. So, it like like you would have when you're at home, when you have your where you plug everything, and we want it to be very easy here. And that's why I think our bedroom are very very well designed in that sense. Is you can plug um, five different devices next to you, um, and I think that's a it's a big plus. I mean, I know that I'm I'm not alone when I say this. When I check into a hotel room, I, I turn into like mission control because I have two phones. Extra battery chargers, laptop, correct, right, and everything else. Yep. Right. Not to mention somebody wants a hair dryer or somebody wants, and you have to be able to have that. Absolutely. And, and and we've done it. Well, the one thing I will tell you that I think you should get a, get some some kudos for because I get this complaint from every woman traveler I know. Right. <laughs> it's lighting in the in the bathroom yep. in the bathroom. Yeah. You, you need better lighting, right? So you got it. And we've got it. I think our bathrooms, you know, it's very bright, but we also have vanities, vanity desk in uh, most of our bedrooms that have a lighting. So it's very much for makeup. Right. Absolutely amazing. Um, it's amazing how much better I look looking at that lamp. <laughs> uh, so I think that's a, that's a The one plus. that was surprising to me is the push button in the shower. Yes. Tell, that was like, I've never seen that. And it's very easy. Normally, I'm used to turning on a faucet. Yeah. This time, you just adjust the temperature before you turn on the faucet. Absolutely. Because there is no faucet to turn on. You push a button, and the shower goes. Absolutely. And it's almost instant hot water. It is, indeed. And I think it's great, first of all, because it's it's um, environmental friendly. Um, you don't waste a lot of water. Absolutely. I think it's very important these I, days. If you took a timer... And turned on the faucet, and ta- how, how much water is being wasted while you're waiting for it to get hot? 
A lot. Wow. Exactly. A lot. Millions of gallons. I mean, absolutely, absolutely. And I think nowadays it is we have more and more guests that are um, asking to not, you know, to to for us to do something that is green. And I think this is amazing. The feedback we have. Well, has that been is not only green. You can. It's tangible. You can see it in action. Correct. It's not like oh, we're not going to wash your towel. Don't you feel better? This is something you know. When you're finished with the shower, you just push a button. Correct. It's Very easy. It's Very simple. <laughs> but it, not only does it work, it sends the right message. Absolutely. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.